Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. So good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Yale Law School Auditorium, to Yale University. Uh, it's uh, a distinct honor today. My name is Peter Salovey. I'm president of Yale, and it's a distinct honor to introduce our 2015 Chubb Fellow, President Obama's National Security Advisor, Susan E. Rice. Ambassador Rice, uh, we welcome you to Yale University, and we're so grateful uh, for your willingness to share your time and your insights with all of us. We're delighted that Ambassador Rice is joined today by a member of her family who is also a member of our family. Uh, this is John Rice, Yale College, class of 1988, and a current fellow of the Yale Corporation. Uh, before I speak about our uh, visitors, I want to say a few words about the history of the Chubb Fellowship. So Hennon Chubb was an 1895 graduate of Yale's Sheffield Scientific School. That's the precursor to the Yale School of Engineering and Applied uh, Sciences. In 1936, he made a substantial gift to Yale University uh, to encourage students to take an interest in public service. Since 1949, the Chubb uh, Endowment has been used to underwrite uh, prestigious visiting speakers uh, who would uh, 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 bring kind of an extra extraordinary presences to campus that would inspire our students. Uh, this uh, fellowship is administered by the master of Timothy Dwight College, uh, Mary Lou. Uh, past Chubb Fellows have included four presidents of the United States, presidents of eight other countries, and more than 150 other regional, national, and internationally prominent individuals noted for their distinction in service to the common good. Uh, the annual Chubb Lecture is a wonderful opportunity to reinforce the shared values of our community. And I know it's a special treat today uh, for you all to hear from someone who is serving at the very heart of our nation and our national interest. As National Security Advisor, Ambassador Rice oversees the National Security Council staff, chairs the National Security Principles Committee, provides the President's daily national security briefing, and is responsible for coordinating the administration's foreign policy, intelligence, and military efforts. She has held numerous appointments within the National Security Council, including as Director for International Organizations and Peacekeeping, uh, as Special Assistant to President Clinton, and as uh, Senior Director for African Affairs. From 1997 to 2001, she was the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. And in 2000, she was co-recipient of the White House's Samuel Nelson Drew Memorial Award for Distinguished Contributions to the Formation of Peaceful Cooperative Relationships Between States. As a senior advisor for national security affairs in the, uh, uh, with the Obama for America campaign, she went on to serve as a member of the advisory board for the Obama-Biden transition, and then as co-chair of its policy working group on national security. From 2002 to 2009, she was a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, 
where she focused on U.S. foreign policy, transnational security threats, uh, weak states, global poverty, and development. Before her appointment as National Security Advisor in 2013, she served as the U.S. Permanent Representative to the United Nations, where she worked to strengthen national and global security and to promote human rights. Ambassador Rice received her BA in history from Stanford University. She holds an MPhil and DPhil in international relations from New College at Oxford University, and uh, she was a Rhodes Scholar there. This is a remarkable opportunity for our students, not just to learn about issues in national security, but to learn about a career path in public service that I am sure uh, is an inspiration. I'm particularly pleased that today's lecture will actually take the form of a conversation. Uh, and it's a conversation between Ambassador Rice and, as I uh, hinted at earlier, a member of the Yale community who is uniquely positioned to join her here on stage. Why do I say that? Well, John Rice, Yale College 88, and a fellow of the Yale Corporation, is the founder and CEO of Management Leadership for Tomorrow, which is a nonprofit organization that helps members of underrepresented minority groups to become leaders in the corporate, nonprofit, and entrepreneurial sectors. After graduating from Yale with a degree in Latin American Studies, he earned his MBA from the Harvard Business School. And while at Harvard, he wrote a business plan for his current organization. And in 1994, he launched it, uh, and la launched it via a mentoring program uh, for minority undergraduates. He was appointed to President Obama's Advisory Commission on Educational Excellence for African Americans and has served as a member of the President's Board of Advisors on Historically Black Colleges and Universities. He also serves on a number of nonprofit boards, including LIFT, the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the American Management Association, the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation. As I mentioned, he is a member of the Yale Corporation, the trustees of Yale University, our fiduciaries. Before that, he was a member of the University Council, which is an advisory group to the president. Uh, but most importantly, for today's purposes, he holds a very special role, and that is he is Ambassador Rice's brother. Younger brother. So, <laughs> so I would like you to join me in thanking him for facilitating today's conversation and to also join me uh, in extending a very warm, warm welcome to Connecticut, to New Haven, to Yale University, to Ambassador Susan E. Rice. Thank you. like I need a phone book. Can you all see me? <laughs> Johnny got all the height in the family. Yeah. She says that she likes to say that I'm a younger brother because she feels that she looks younger. So that's a, exactly. you know, that's a side. You know. So thanks for having us, first of all. And I think we're going to try to have some fun over the course of, uh, of, the, uh, of the hour here. And as Peter said, approach this a little bit differently than potentially some of uh, the past Chubb, uh, Chubb fellow lectures. Uh, what 
what, what we'd like to do, and we, again, I'll say, you know, Susan and I have had plenty of fireside chats over the years, uh, uh, but none in public. So this is the first time we've done this, and uh, bear with us, right? So um, who knows where it will go, but we hope it will be instructive. And I think we, we'd like to structure it in a way that is a little bit different than uh, if this were a, you know, if I were someone like a real interviewer, okay, someone who does this for a living, uh, who happens, you know, and because I'm her brother, hopefully we can, we can push a little bit further on some issues if she'll let me, get a little bit more personal, uh, and, uh, and hopefully we'll keep it professional. And hopefully so we'll still like each other when we're done. Right, so, <laughs> so we'll, the, way, the way we're gonna structure this, in terms of the fireside chat, before, before we open it up for questions from you all, uh, is uh, we'll talk a little bit about the core here, you know, sort of foreign policy, uh, which uh, is, you know, your living and breathing every day. Uh, and then I think we'd like to broaden it and, and talk more generally about issues that I think that I know that uh, Susan cares about that cut across, they may, they may incorporate foreign policy, but they may be focused on other issues and, and that, that she thinks are important. We want to get her, her thoughts on those things, a few themes there. And then we want to give you more personal and, and, uh, and, and give you all a sense of what makes her tick and hopefully uh, to share some advice and perspective from the, uh, you know, the experiences that she's had. So that's gonna be the approach, obviously, that we'll open up for questions and we can go anywhere with those questions as well. Is that okay, Susan? No. No? All right. <laughs> All right well, let's it do is it. what it is, go ahead. I wanna pour some water there too for you. Uh, this is something that she's never done. She's never, you know, pouring some water for me. So I appreciate this is the first one. That's actually not true. She's a great cook. And, and she'd had us over for dinner on Sunday night and did a fantastic job, so I uh, appreciate that. Don't... <laughs> so let's start foreign policy. And we, we know that she has a high-pressure job, uh, and to say the least, one of the highest-pressure pressure cooker jobs, I think, in, in the world. Um, and so my first question really is, you know, when describe the time where you have been the most nervous. All right. Uh, uh, when, when were you worried the most about having to go do something before you did it? Um, this is going to sound uh, strange to some of you, but the work I do every day uh, in my job is work that I feel relatively comfortable with, and I've been doing it for the better part of my career. Uh, and I may stress about issues uh, or stress about um, how a particular event or trip or visit may come out. Um, but that's very normal, manageable stress for me. The most stressed I've ever been in life, in all honesty, was when I had to throw out the opening pitch at the Nationals game uh, <laughs> in 2013. I had just taken my job as National Security Advisor uh, that month. Um, I am a decent athlete, but I'm at no particular skill at baseball. And uh, I was determined to throw it from the mound uh, and at least wanted to get it uh, across uh, in the vicinity of the plate, to the plate, at least the distance. Um, and I was practicing for uh, weeks, really. And um, I was lucky enough that some of the guys on my security detail were willing to throw with me. So we'd go out, we'd throw a few uh, on a Saturday or Sunday. 
Um, and the transition occurred right as I left my job at the UN and was coming over to um, the White House. And my security detail switched from diplomatic security that helped me uh, and, and took care of me when I was a UN ambassador to Secret Service. Um, and the, my lead agent on Secret Service was determined that I was not going to humiliate everybody <laughs> at, at the plate. And so he was kind enough to throw with me in the um, tunnel right uh, before I went out uh, on the field. And I had to go out, and I was struck by how fast it all happened. You get there, and they say, okay, go to the mound, and 50,000 people are watching you, and you're either going to get it or you're, you're not going to get it. And you can imagine that, you know, I, I've been uh, the subject of uh, a little bit of uh, public... Uh, Oh, really? Criticism on occasion. <laughs> and I could just see Fox News, you know, doing a loop <laughs> on me grounding the ball, you know. So uh, I got up there and Board. there was no time, and they said, okay, Susan Rice, the national security advisor, Johnny was there. And it was mostly cheers, but there were some audible boos. Yeah, they were. They were. <laughs> and I just had to throw. And I wound up and threw it, and I threw a strike across the plate. And uh, my heart rate went from probably 190 uh, back down to something like 70. And what would your boss have said? Yeah, well, exactly. If you had the president the would have ragged yeah. on me until yeah. you know there was no end. And he had done the same, and of course, managed to throw a pitch. So he would have talked about me. And then I was worried, frankly, on behalf of all womankind, <laughs> that you know if I let the side down, that it would have been terrible. So that was stress of a sort I was not uh, accustomed to, and uh, I'm never, ever doing it again. Uh, not the <laughs> answer I would have enough. expected. That's fantastic. So, so let's talk about uh, Syria. Let's switch. Let's pivot a little bit here. All right? <laughs> well, that stresses me out, too. All right. So I know you've shared with me, like, that how you know, this is maybe the most complicated foreign policy issue that, you, that you've had to deal with intellectually in your career, um, in part because... Sad. Uh, you know, it seems like there are you know, almost nothing but bad options that cascade into another uh, you know, set of worse options and even worse scenarios and so forth. So, you know, uh, first question is, sort of, is, there, is there any path to a political solution and, and is there any way that we can mitigate or alleviate this humanitarian crisis that's coming out of there? Well, honestly, I do, I do think that the crisis in Syria is the hardest problem to solve that I've encountered. Um, and I've felt that way from the very beginning four and a half years ago. And it, it's only getting harder. There's no question. I do think there is a path to a political solution. And we're working very hard towards that, as we have for quite a while. But as the dynamics have changed and the circumstances have evolved, in some ways, uh, the path is more fraught when you consider that um, this is now a multi-front conflict. Uh, it's the opposition against Assad, Assad against the opposition and his people. Uh, it's ISIL and al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda affiliate, against both of those sides. And it's the world against ISIL uh, and al-Nusra. So it, it is a mashup, if there is such a thing, um, on the battlefield. And the only way this gets resolved is through a political solution. There, there's no other way. I mean, you could have local 
uh, ceasefires, conceivably we have periodic success in, in humanitarian access, but to deal with the primary concern we have, which is defeating ISIL mm -hmm. and ensuring that the threat that, that that very pernicious terrorist organization poses is not exacerbated uh, and, and doesn't reach our shores is our primary focus. But to accomplish that, obviously, we also have to deal with the fundamental underlying conflict, which is a civil conflict, uh, which has taken an extraordinary humanitarian toll. And we obviously have a great interest in alleviating the suffering. And that war can only end at the negotiating table. That's going to require a resolution, not frankly dissimilar from what was envisioned uh, back in Geneva in 2012 when we were part of a, uh, a, a negotiation that established a framework that envisioned a transitional governing authority uh, agreed by mutual consent between the opposition and the government. Uh, and the theory of that was if there had to be mutual consent, there couldn't be the perpetuation of the Assad, uh, of Assad's leadership in a regime that had lost all legitimacy with its people. There would have to be other elements from the existing government that had less blood on its hands uh, in practice, elements of the opposition who were capable of, of bringing expertise to a, a transitional governing body, and then a period of transition, time to be determined, um, during which a new constitution could be written, elections could be organized, a ceasefire implemented, et cetera. That still remains fundamentally uh, the, the likeliest outcome when eventually we get to a political solution. We are trying very hard to accelerate the achievement of the political solution. And Secretary Kerry uh, last week uh, met in uh, Vienna with the foreign ministers of Turkey uh, and Saudi Arabia and Russia, who are key players, obviously, in this. Um, and he will meet again uh, in uh, what I expect will be just a, several days' time with that group and then a broader group uh, of countries in the region with the aim of trying to operationalize some kind of political transition and ceasefire. Um, the big thorny issue that remains is, is when uh, and whether Assad steps aside. Mm -hmm. Our view remains that he has to go, that there can't be an end to this conflict, which has taken so many lives and cost, uh, caused so much suffering and you know, displacement of over four million people without uh, him departing as part of the transition. But at what stage of the transition uh, is something that is being discussed and debated. We have very different views and our coalition partners do from the Syrian government, the Russians, and the Iranians. But I think there is the potential for um, an, an arrangement to be agreed wherein this transition begins, perhaps with Assad still in power, but that it, it doesn't end with him in power. Um, and when along that continuum the transition and his removal occurs is, is the hardest uh, issue. The other challenge is, frankly, that the opposition is extraordinarily fragmented. Um, and there is no single group or leader uh, that speaks for those that have been fighting Assad. Um, and now the opposition we, there is what we believe to be or call and work with the moderate opposition, but they are sometimes commingled uh, with the extremist opposition, including elements uh, like al-Nusra or those uh, affiliated with al-Nusra. The only thing that most people, and I would say almost everybody, agrees with is that ISIL is a problem that, that 
can only be dealt with uh, directly and confrontationally. And so it, the aim is to, to get this political solution as soon as possible and turn our collective efforts uh, without the distraction of, of this ongoing civil conflict right. against ISIL. Right. And we haven't talked about Iraq, but obviously yeah. that's very much part of the, the same whole. Right. So, so it's incredibly complicated, and, I, and, and if, if we, so for those of us who are not in there with you and the President and the Secretary Kerry and your, and your teams uh, thinking through these issues, you know, uh, you know, I'm always, I've always been curious sort of, you know, what principles, human principles you kind of uh, pull from and whether, you know, beyond the issues here, is there anything that, that those of us uh, who are not in your world uh, can glean about sort of what principles to draw upon when you're dealing with a situation where there are no good options and you have to decide uh, uh, among things, uh, among options that are, you know, just uh, th that where you don't have a positive set of options. And I'm wondering, you know, is there, is there anything that we can learn from, th again, outside of foreign policy in our own lives? Any, any, any thought you'd have on what principles that, you know, what you've learned, what principles we can draw upon that are relevant to to our lives outside of uh, your world. Well, I'm not sure if the lessons are directly applicable. Yeah. I mean, in the, One, two, in the three, world yeah. of foreign policy and national security, at the risk of oversimplifying, you know, the first question or the first principle that we have to wrestle with is, quite frankly, what is in the United States national interest? Right. Uh, and that may be different. The answer to that question, very ruthlessly defined, uh, uh, may be um, not as uh, uh, edifying as we might yeah. want to believe. Yeah. I mean, in the, it, is it in the United States national interest, for example, in Syria to get deeply involved in the conflict on the ground in a combat role? Mm -hmm. Well, we've seen the consequences of the conflict continuing. That's a, uh, th th they are deeply insidious consequences that are, have horrific outcomes for the people of Syria, are, are destabilizing given the refugee outflow to the neighbors. You're now having implications with the refugee flow for Europe. Um, and now we have the challenge of ISIL, which does directly yeah. threaten uh, our, our interests and that of our, our allies and partners. Yeah. But we may have to tailor our, our solutions to more narrowly to the challenge of defeating ISIL than yeah. to the broader challenges that are, are important that we care about, but are not the ones we, we must prioritize. Right. So At the same else? time, yeah. we, can, we can alleviate humanitarian suffering. We are the largest contributor to the humanitarian response with over $4.5 billion. But, you know, as human beings, we all want to, to do what is, you know, the right thing on a human level. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes, I would argue even oftentimes, what is right on a human level is also what most or best serves U.S. interests. But it's not a 100% coincidence. And sometimes the hardest choices are when those things can't be readily reconciled. Right. So now, translating that into, you know, daily life is, is hard. I mean, when you face circumstances um, where in your personal or professional life you have no good answers and, and no good options. Um, you know, I, I think that, I don't know that I can say, you know, take this lesson from the Situation Room and apply it 
somewhere else. But I, I think one thing I'd say is, you know, when you examine your options, uh, you have to ask not only what will be the effect of a particular action, um, but you also have to ask what will be the effect of inaction. Um, and weigh those and, um, and try to anticipate the consequences of your actions, you know, three or four steps down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because what may be the most immediate, least bad answer today could prove to be worse down the road. Down the road. Down the road. Yeah. Um, and, and I suppose vice versa. So, you know, trying to play out almost as if a chess game the actions and reactions yep. um, is, I guess, the, the best analogy I can draw. That's helpful. Um, That's but helpful. It's, 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 hard to, it's hard to make a, a direct connection. I think that's instructive. And, and so stepping back a little bit, I mean, you've been on, uh, you've been a core member of the, of the President's Foreign Policy Team from the beginning, right? Uh, you started up at the UN and now down in uh, the White House. Uh, and I assume you're going to stay till the end. Okay, I haven't heard otherwise. And uh, so I, I want to ask you, you know, if you kind of reflect back, you, know, you guys, there, a lot has been accomplished. You know, what are you most proud of? You think about a couple, you know, if you want to mention a few milestones or a few accomplishments that you're most proud of uh, that you weren't sure you could get done when, when, you, when, when, uh, when you joined the team back actually on the campaign and, then, and when uh, the president was sworn in. You know, what, what are you most proud of to date? Well, with the caveat that that which I'm most proud of doesn't mean that I had a direct hand in okay. <laughs> accomplishing all of them. Um, and I think vitally important from a national security point of view was the success that our economic team had early on in turning around the economy. Because uh, a huge source of our international strength is the strength of uh, our economy domestically and whether we're able to grow and, and produce uh, wealth and jobs, and when the president came into office, we were, as you well recall, at the, the lowest point uh, since the Great yeah. Depression. And now, uh, after uh, years, um, we are back to a place of, of economic leadership in the world. Um, and the rest of the world um, has certainly made progress, but you know, the economies in, in various different parts of the world are still relatively soft. We're now uh, not impervious, obviously, but um, the strongest link. And that uh, has been fundamental in restoring uh, our leadership abroad. And, but beyond that, obviously, I mean, we've tried to focus on a number of things. First of all, um, despite the, uh, the challenges that still remain in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, when President Obama came into office, we had 180,000 troops in yep. both theaters. Um, we are down to uh, less than 10,000 in Afghanistan today. Uh, we'll be going down to 5,500 by the end of next year. Um, and we're at about 3,300 in Iraq. Um, and very narrowly tailored missions to supporting the Iraqis and the Afghans by training and advising and assisting them. We're not in combat in either theater directly anymore. Um, and we're also con engaged in counterterrorism in a, in a targeted way. I think you know the the fact that we've been able to redeploy and rebalance and refresh uh, our uh, our armed forces is is vitally important to our readiness and our our ongoing strength, even as the nature of challenges has evolved. But I'm particularly pleased that when you look around the world, um, we're 
rebalancing to Asia and the Asia Pacific. A great deal of our time and energy that doesn't get a lot of uh, attention in the press is devoted uh, to the work that we're doing in the Asia Pacific. Um, we have just had over the last several months uh, high profile and very impactful visits from uh, the Japanese leader, the Chinese leader, the South Korean leader, just this week, the Indonesian leader. Um, we are heading to Asia next month. Uh, again, we have gone, if not every year, then twice every year uh, in, in the recent past um, for very important uh, summit meetings out there. And we've just been able to conclude the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, Trade Agreement, which is a signature uh, element of uh, the Asia rebalance. So I think that's something that will be uh, of lasting significance. We've all worked very hard uh, on the issue of uh, nonproliferation and trying to reduce the, the threat um, from uh, loose, what some people call loose nukes, which is not the term we're supposed to use, but um, you know, we have strengthened nuclear security in a very meaningful way. And then, of course, um, we've been able to reach the agreement to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon uh, with the support of uh, the, the international community. Um, and I think that will prove, uh, if fully implemented, to have been um, an unexpected uh, and yet very uh, meaningful means of constraining a very dangerous nuclear program and ensuring that Iran is not able uh, to uh, obtain a nuclear weapon. Right. So that, that's another thing. I, I think, uh, frankly, um, when we look back on, on our time, I certainly will be very pleased that uh, we've made an opening with Cuba uh, and uh, that 50 years of failed policy um, have been um, s supplanted by what I think will prove over the long term to be the most effective means of opening up Cuba, both politically and economically. Um, and finally, uh, and I could go on, but, uh, you know, as a policymaker, but also as a mother mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as a citizen, you know, one of the issues that, that I'm most concerned about, and I know the president has put the highest priority on, is climate change uh, and trying to address that threat. And we are now heading into Paris uh, in December for uh, the uh, COP uh, meeting on climate change with the real potential uh, of achieving an agreement that will ratchet down uh, emissions in a meaningful way. And we've been able to negotiate with China and the, the largest, we're the first and the second largest emitters, emitters of uh, greenhouse gases, uh, an unprecedented mutual commitment uh, to uh, reduce our, our carbon output. Um, and that has set the stage for us to be able to gain commitments from countries amounting to 80%, uh, 85% now of uh, emissions around the world to make very concrete uh, national commitments to reduce their uh, emissions. So if we can get this agreement in Paris, and if it is meaningful uh, and, and uh, substantive, um, that will be yeah. a huge step. Fantastic. And the steps we've taken domestically to reinforce that are a critical part uh, as well. Got it. So if I could pivot a little bit just to an area of, uh, uh, that you don't get to talk too much, at least so much about publicly. And um, I think 
you know, but I know you well enough to know that you are passionate about some things that go beyond foreign policy. You think? Right? Uh, and there are things that are important to our nation. And one of the things that you share with me, Susan, you know, is, is your passion for sort of the uh, improving equality of opportunity uh, in this nation and globally. And, and so when you think about hot button issues uh, that, that are, you know, like, uh, like, criminal justice reform and policing and immigration, healthcare, K through 12 education, gay marriage. I mean, so many of them relate to this, uh, you know, are related to this, the issue of equality of opportunity. Uh, and uh, some of these issues, you all really moved the needle on it within the context of the administration over the last uh, seven years. Some are rising to the top now, uh, but I just, I want to get your, you know, your point of view, not necessarily from the point of the, you know, the perspective of the administration, okay? Because this is not your lane, I as you tell I me. I would right? get out of my uh, lane. But given that, you've, you know, we're, we're here with members of, of the New Haven community and students and professors here at the university uh, who are ambitious and idealistic and are tackling some of these tough issues, you know, in your mind, you know, what are the one or two critical levers that we should focus on uh, uh, in our nation to move the needle on equality of opportunity? Well, um, okay. How do we? Okay. I'm sorry. So, Can't hear. So, can you hear better now? Yeah. Thank you for saying it. I wish you'd said it sooner. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. These are right. unusual contraptions. Can you hear me? Yeah? Okay, sorry. So repeat yeah. the question. So the, the, the question is, when you think about, you know, addressing, you know, inequality here, you know, inequality of opportunity in this nation, and you can speak globally if you like, you know, if you, you know, if you were folks in the crowd, if you, you know, what should we, what can we move the needle on? What are the things, the levers that we should be focusing on to, to, uh, to, Build a nation that has a uh, that really addresses and moves the needle on 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 equality of opportunity. Well, I mean, Johnny, I think Correct. you know. I'm, I'm, this is something I care deeply about, but it's not an area that I'm expert in. Yeah. Um, I I think you heard from the introduction of of uh, my background and uh, Johnny's. I call him Johnny, by the way. He, some people call him John. Um, that we've taken very different uh, career paths, um, but we grew up in the same household with the same values and the same uh, parents and the same, many of the same, I think, motivations and concerns. And I think this is a, an area that has united us. John's work is, is really about building ladders for those who um, have not had uh, necessarily all of the, the privilege and opportunity uh, that has been, that we've been blessed with and that, that many are blessed with, um, so that they have the mentorship and the preparation and the training to go into uh, high-powered um, careers and opportunities in business or management or the nonprofit world. But the theory of, of John's nonprofit uh, is that if you catch a young person early on uh, and give the, him or her, with all of their in, inherent talent, uh, the opportunities, the mentorship, the training, uh, the support to succeed, 
then the likelihood of their success goes way up. Yeah. And my own personal passion that uh, is, is, Johnny said, is not the focus of my work day to day, but is fundamentally an animating uh, motivation, is I believe deeply, as many of us do, in the fundamental worth and equality of every human being. And I believe fundamentally, and this may be part of my experience as an African-American woman, that there is so much more talent out there than ever is able uh, to rise to the surface. And that we have not only an obligation and an interest in nurturing and cultivating that talent, uh, but that as a matter of national strength, and even indeed as a matter of national security, to the extent that we are not cultivating and nurturing that talent wherever it may reside, we are uh, we are diminished. We are not firing on all cylinders. We're competing with one hand tied behind our back. Uh, and so I, I believe passionately that we can do better and we have to do better. Uh, and that, I, I think, frankly, boils down to what you all would uh, assume and that is sort of uh, obvious, which is education. Mm -hmm and starting at the earliest stages, uh, at you know, early, early education, preschool, and all the way up through uh, higher education, mm -hmm. being able to provide young people with the, the support uh, that, that they need and deserve. And that means that education has to be affordable, uh, it has to be of a decent quality, yeah. it has to be safe, uh, and it has to be available to kids, whether they come from inner city New Haven or uh, from, you know, right. the wealthiest suburbs right. uh, elsewhere. And frankly, we still have not done, uh, in my judgment, uh, as a nation, a su sufficient job of focusing on that deficit and investing uh, in the talent that this nation has. And we are one of the most skilled, diverse, uh, rich societies in the world. Uh, and when I look out internationally and I think, you know, how do we sustain American leadership through the 21st century and beyond? How do we uh, maximize our inherent strengths? And I don't mean just our military strength or even our economic strength, um, but our uh, social and our, our intellectual strength and our, our cultural strength, it necessitates that we take advantage of this extraordinary fabric that, that is our talented and diverse society. And if we're not doing that adequately, um, not only are we leaving uh, behind so many, but I, I really truly believe we are not um, doing our, uh, we're not fulfilling our potential as a global leader. Right. Right. So, getting even more personal, okay? So we haven't gotten personal yet. Okay. Well, I, here we go. Real personal. All right. We'll give <laughs> more. Uh, so, you're a mom of two. Yeah. Right. You have a seventh grader, and you have a son, seventh grade daughter, Maris, son in high school who's actually accompanied you here, uh, Jake, and and uh, your wife of tw 23 years. Is that right? How many, yeah. How many years? Okay. Um, and you spent a lot of time. I mean, uh, you know, I've been so impressed by how you've been able to spend so much time over the course of the last eight years caring for our father, you know, uh, our mom now, you know, and uh, finding, you know, finding time to do that. So 
so this is not a question about work-life balance, because I know that's not you know, even a, 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 a you know, part of the vocabulary here. But I, but I, I, I wanted, to, I, you know, I wanted to, to see if you have any you know, guiding principles around that you could share with uh, the audience here about how to stay above water and not let the most important balls drop. How do you approach it? How do you, you know, uh, how do you, knowing that it's not perfect, knowing that, that you've got to make tough trade-offs in your personal life. Um, you've, you know, you've, you've kept the most important. I can attest to that personally. I've been really, I really admire you, how you figured out how to do that. Uh, and it comes with trade-offs. But any, you know, what advice would you have for the folks here, whether they're uh, undergrad, grad students here, or folks who are not students here, on, on how to keep the most important balls from dropping? When you're well, let me first of all, I'm not trying to blow smoke here, but uh, Johnny has given me a lot of credit. Um, and the fact is, we've both, we have had, well, we've been blessed with two wonderful parents. Our father passed away uh, four and a half years ago. Our mom is still alive. She, I think, would have enjoyed um, being here today. Um, she's in Washington and uh, her health is uh, fragile. Um, and we have together, um, I think done a pretty good job of yeah. trying to, to support our parents. Um, and we've succeeded because we've done it together, along with my husband and, and Johnny's wife um, and our kids. And the answer to your question is because, you know, it's a, it, this is teamwork. No mm -hmm. one individual can, uh, can manage, you know, the, the challenges of, of uh, taking care of kids, taking care of family, taking care of self. It, it does require partners. And so marry so, well? That's your, that's your so advice? Marry well? Definitely marry well. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been you extraordinarily right. blessed to have uh, just the most wonderful, uh, supportive, and uh, you know, talented husband. You have, you've done very well yourself. And, uh, and Fortunately, everybody likes each other, so we really we have been a team. But I, if I had some advice, I, I'd say the following. First of all, everybody is different. Every circumstance is different. And I hate these conversations where, you know, women debate whether they lean in, right, lean right, out, right. you know. You know, tell everybody how to handle their lives. My view on this is everybody's life is different. Everybody's circumstance is different. People need to stop telling each other what to do and just support each other and recognize that everybody's trying to make the best choices they can in their particular circumstances. And there's no one-size-fits-all formula. The only thing I can say from my vantage point that has been uh, a valuable principle for me is that family comes first. And even in a job like mine, family comes first. Because, and your dearest friends, because when everything else falls apart, that's what you've got left. You've got the people you love and the people who love you. And uh, if you ever forget that, then I, I think you're missing something fundamental. Um, and I just wanna say, I mean, I've, been, I've thought a lot about this in my own life, and I've just seen it modeled in the most extraordinary way um, when having had the privilege of, of working very closely with Vice President Biden, who's just gone through an extraordinary loss uh, and, man, and in the context of working, you know, the second toughest job in the world. And uh, he has been there for his family. His family has been there for him. He was there for Bo, just as he was there for 
Bo and Hunter uh, early in their lives when they suffered extraordinary loss. Uh, and he is living proof that you can and you must um, invest your utmost in the family, even as you take on the most challenging responsibilities that you might find, whether in government or the private sector or uh, the nonprofit world. So, um, you know, there have been times in my professional life and personal life where it's, you know, we've hit very painful patches. Uh, but what has made it all sustainable and worthwhile is that uh, we've had each other and we've had uh, our extended family and uh, the love and support of our kids and our, our parents and um, our spouses. Um, and uh, I think, you know, it, it's a simple truism, but I think sometimes in uh, the rush and the, the press of um, professional life and stress, that can sometimes be forgotten yeah. and it shouldn't be. All right, so before we open it up for questions, I have one last one, and it builds upon what you said, and, and uh, it speaks to, you know, you know you've, had kind, you've had a quite a roller coaster ride, <laughs> right, over the course of the last few years. I mean, you, uh, you know, had a great run at the UN, felt like you got a lot done there. Um, Benghazi came up, and it, that got politicized. Um, you know, the whole Secretary of State stuff, and uh, and now what you talked about some of the things that uh, you've really been excited about over the course of your tenure here uh, and as a National Security Advisor. Uh, so there are probably lots of people here today whose parents are worrying how they will handle adversity when it comes up. How do you you know and handle setbacks? Because so many folks here up at Yale. Uh, haven't had big setbacks yet, and uh, these are these can, these can be a new frontier because you've had so much success in your lives to date. And I'm wondering, you know, uh, what advice would you have for these folks about what you draw on when you have setbacks, when you have adversity, uh, when, you know, uh, when that comes? What do, where do you draw on? Do you draw on fa from family? You know, do you what do you, you know, what do you look at? What do you do? And even when especially in times where you feel like you, you, know, you may or may not have done anything to bring that adversity on yourself? I know that's a tough question, but I, it's a personal question, but anything you would share with the group about how to, how to deal with adversity when it comes? Well, I think uh, the first answer is the answer I already gave, which yeah. is that family uh, and friends uh, and uh, the strength that they provide. But I think also, the strength has got to come from inside. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll, I, now I was just speaking very, very personally. Uh, I have, for better or for worse, I've always known who I am. I've always known what I believe. Uh, I've always tried to do what I do with the utmost integrity and uh, in, intensity. And I believe that you know, I know who I am and I also know who I'm not. And when I'm watching a, a caricature or a critique of myself that is painful and uh, personalized, um, I'm able to, I don't want to suggest that I don't feel the 
I don't feel offended or I don't feel hurt in some instances by it. Um, but I'm also able to distinguish between what I know about myself and who I know myself to be and what is being said. Yeah. And there, to the extent that I'm able to uh, understand and, and maintain that distinction, I can keep a, a certain distance from it. What's harder, and I'll tell you that, and you know this, but I'll just acknowledge it here. Um, the hardest thing for me going through the period you described in, in 2012 um, was not w what it felt like for me. The hardest thing was what I saw it do to my mom and to my daughter, uh, who were in very different ways and different, I mean, what was Maris was? Fifth grade? Yeah, no. 11 or 12? No, she's 12 now. Oh, my God. <laughs> she's, so she was she nine. Was nine. Yeah. Uh, it really hit her very, very hard. She was old enough to be able to understand that her mom is being vilified on the television uh, and hear the things that were being said um, and sort of understand why it was happening, but not really understand that it, that it, what you see isn't necessarily all that there is to the story. Uh, and it was, it, it really was uh, briefly, but intensely destabilizing for her. And then my mom, uh, who's uh, tough as nails, um, but has a addiction to cable news, <laughs> uh, just couldn't turn television off, but also it was driving her absolutely insane. And this after she'd just come out of the hospital and been through, you know, surgery and, and very difficult recovery and all this stuff. And, you know, she just was beside herself. And it was the only time that I was really, to, I hate to say this, but I was glad dad wasn't alive. Because yeah. if dad had been alive, he would have taken his shotgun. <laughs> to Capitol Hill, and it would have been all over. Right. So. Grew up in South Carolina, right? So, Sipping over, right? Right. Uh, you know, you just, the other thing I'd say is that you, you keep working, you keep doing what you believe. Yeah. And uh, in some ways, it was great to be at the UN at the time where the issues that we were working on and that my fellow ambassadors cared about were far removed from the noise in Washington. Yeah. It never, it, you, it was incredible to me that as UN ambassador, I would have to go before the UN press corps multiple times a week and make statements or take questions. I never once at the UN got asked about Benghazi because they didn't care. They, it was, they, they saw it as a manufactured political story and they wanted to ask about the issues on the uh, on the UN agenda. Come to Washington, it's a little bit different. A little different, yeah. Got it. Okay, let's open it up. So, uh, yeah, why don't you come on up as you will be much more capable moderator than I. So, how we want to run this. She's so, running it. First, I just want to make fine. sure we give a large round of applause to Ambassador Rice and John Rice. 
And I want to thank Johnny, but encourage him to keep his day job. <laughs> you did a great job. So I am the moderator of this uh, Q&A session, and I may need to moderate up here as well, as I see. <laughs> oh, there was a friendly handshake that just happened. Uh, I am the master of Timothy Dwight College. I'm Mary Lou, and I, it's a real pleasure for me to um, greet all of you and certainly welcome our two wonderful guests who shared with us their remarks. Um, and they covered so much ground in their fireside chat, so I think there's going to be numerous opportunities to ask questions to follow up. Um, I also want to take the time really quickly to thank President Salave for his introductory remarks. Thank you for that. Um, so we are going to open up for uh, questions right now. So please go ahead and line up either two microphones right here and just be in a very orderly fashion. And we'll alternate between the two microphones. Um, I'm seeing two very large lines forming, and we will not be able to get through all of the questions. I already am apologizing to the people in the back. So I will just say, once you ask your question, please step aside from the microphone, and let's let our wonderful um, uh, guests respond. So let's start on this side. I um, live in Ukraine. I've done so for the past 25 years. Um, I'd like to ask you your view on the situation in Ukraine with reference to two things in particular. First, um, do the violations of the Budapest Treaty fundamentally undermine nuclear nonproliferation for the future? And second, can the U.S. with Japan, which I believe would be favorable to this, I know it would be, and the EU, help to get the World Bank's MEGA political risk insurance program going for Ukraine again so that there can be an investment from the rest of the world. You've done a fine job with OPEC, but a lot of the world that was investing in Ukraine has stopped, and it's produced a catastrophic 25% decline in the GDP. And um, this wasn't caused by Ukraine. It was caused by Ukraine's reliance on the security assurances of the Budapest Treaty, based on which it gave up 5,000 nuclear weapons. So can... Uh, can the United States help with this? Well, certainly we can and we are uh, working to help Ukraine in many different ways with its economic recovery. Uh, just yesterday, just yesterday, uh, I was saying we are, uh, we are working to help Ukraine in various ways, uh, including with its economic recovery. Just yesterday, uh, in Kyiv, uh, we announced the third $1 billion U.S. government loan guarantee uh, for the government in Kyiv. We are providing technical assistance. We're providing military aid. Uh, we're providing um, various forms of, of security and economic support to the government. And the loan guarantees, of course, are not the, the sum total uh, of our uh, economic assistance, but they're a, a part and parcel. We've also been very active with Europe and the international financial institutions uh, to try to provide uh, the support that Ukraine is, is now receiving through the international financial institutions. So um, we are very much trying to support economic recovery in Ukraine and, and uh, its um, uh, independence uh, from uh, its its former dependence on on Russia and and the East. So there is 
there is uh, there have been some creative ideas, and, and, and you may be referring to some of the ideas that George Soros has talked about. Correct. Um, and these are, are ones that we have uh, looked at very carefully. I've spoken myself to uh, Mr. Soros about this, as of many of my colleagues, including Secretary Liu. His idea relies on uh, a mechanism within the European Union um, and their ability uh, to activate a mechanism that could leverage additional funds. And unfortunately, um, there are a number of complexities with it, but the, the principal one being that the Europeans have not been interested in pursuing that option. Yes, his, his way of doing it is not the only way. There are other ways. And as a lawyer in the private sector there for 25 years, we have a lot of clients that would like to come in and make a contribution to the economy. The private sector has been forgotten. Uh, he is correct. Without political risk insurance, um, when it gets to board approval level, uh, companies are, are afraid. With that, they will go forward with plans they would like to implement. And I personally have actually, my law firm, a couple of billion dollars of investment that is presently frozen that could be unblocked with political risk insurance at the MEGA level, as has been done for the West Bank and Gaza. That would work. Soros' mechanism probably doesn't. Well, I appreciate that, and I'll look into it. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, this gentleman here. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, uh, Ambassador Rice and brother. <laughs> you can call him Johnny. <laughs> uh, it was very interesting to hear the personal side, to know that behind that, that uh, very informidable um, government figure that you are, that there is a very personal side that's very important. Um, I, I just want to, my question has to do with Syria, but very quickly regarding this gentleman in Ukraine. We represent a, a, a consortium of students all over the world, and many of them are in Ukraine. And um, they asked me to ask you one question or to let you know one thing, and that they are very concerned about the fact that the uh, general prosecutor in Ukraine, they feel, is corrupt and is not really um, um, doing, uh, making any progress in terms of judicial reform, in terms of, of really uh, reforming the judiciary and reforming uh, and, and getting rid of a lot of government figures. And this is what they feel. And they're just wondering if the United States could exert some kind of leverage or at least look into the fact that this general prosecutor is, is uh, very much not on the side of Ukraine citizenry. But that, my main question has to do with uh, Syria and what I consider is um, a, not a no-fly zone, but a buffer zone. And the fact that uh, we also deal with Russian students and they all seem to uh, feel that the Russian government might be very amenable to uh, considering uh, the establishment of a buffer zone so that refugees, instead of having to cross the Mediterranean, could, could rest or be settled in this zone with, uh, obviously, the, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of problems with that, I realize. There's, there's costs and then there's possibility of, of conflict. But if the Russian government is willing to support this, and they feel it will because the refugees, um, a lot of these refugees or a lot of these terrorists, um, could, a lot of jihadists could be part of the refugees and going back to Russia. Um, so that I'm wondering why the United States government has not pursued, or at least outwardly, pursued the establishment more uh, of a buffer zone in Syria. 
Thank you very much. Well, thank you for the question. It's a, it's a topical one. We have, at various points during the course of the crisis in Syria, weighed the merits uh, and risks of um, various forms of zones, as we shorthand them. Uh, No-fly zones, safe zones uh, on the ground where uh, civilians could be protected. I think that's what you mean. And then we've also looked at something that we've termed a buffer zone. Uh, which is not necessarily a safe zone with protection for civilians on the ground, but uh, some a zone meant to be a bulwark so that people and weapons and uh, other malicious flows of goods and, and the like can't continue to occur. Um, look, in all honesty, these are options that, uh, that we continue to examine. Uh, we have not ruled out any of them uh, in a, in a formal or permanent way, but we've looked at them very, very closely, uh, including, again, very recently. And they are fraught with real uh, challenges and difficulties. Um, they are incredibly resource-intensive to secure. So take your model of, let me call it a safe zone, uh, on, let's say, the northern or southern border. Uh, within Syria, either abutting Turkey or abutting Jordan, um, where it, 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 theoretically civilians might be protected. Um, to, to enforce a, a safe zone effectively, you not only need planes in the air, uh, and the planes in the air are complicated because the threat that most of the, the, the most proximate danger to civilians is um, in fact, not fixed-wing aircraft. It's helicopters dropping barrel bombs that are harder to deal with in the context of an air cap. And then it's on the ground where you need literally tens of thousands of troops uh, to hold and clear that territory. Um, where those troops would come from, uh, w whether weighing our interests, you would use uh, our air power and our forces to protect folks on the ground and clearing out uh, territory or whether you would use them to go after ISIL because they are not the same mission is one of the, the tricky questions that policymakers have to weigh. A trade-off where if we were to employ additional resources, would they best be utilized? A humanitarian mission, which is the one you're describing, uh, is, not, uh, is not the same as a counter-ISIL mission in the current context. There may be a point when they allied, but they don't at the moment. Uh, and then you, uh, you have the question of to what extent does that actually improve conditions on the ground? The major border crossings are open to humanitarian aid. The aid is flowing. Uh, so uh, particularly into the areas near the border that we're talking about. So the incremental benefit to civilians, our actual humanitarian experts do not think is, is very significant. And there's a real question as to whether the establishment of these zones would draw people back in or actually cause them to flee for fear that they're going to be trapped in these zones where they'd rather have freedom of movement internally or externally. So there, there's a huge number of complexities associated with this, which is not to say these are options that are off the table, but we are digging into them very deeply, and they are not uh, as simple and obvious solutions as you might hear if, by turning on you know, CNN and listening to, to what the pundits are saying. Thank you. And over here. Hi, sorry, I have laryngitis. 
but I didn't want to pass up this opportunity to ask you a question. It may be for both of you. One is, as a woman of color, you're constantly in international settings where you are maybe the only woman in the room or the only African-American in the room, or, well, but, um, <laughs> not always, but often. How you handle yourself in those situations where you might find sexism or some type of uh, discrimination against you because of who you are. Um, and the other part of my question is, I teach at an inner city high school here in New Haven at Hill House, and it may be more towards you, Johnny. Um, what do you think we can do at the local level to help our kids for to like experience things like this, to expose them to international, because they think very small, they think very locally, and uh, to get them to think more outside of New Haven or their particular situations and contribute like you were talking about at the end about there are so many resources that we don't tap for whatever reason um, that America might be losing out on the potential that we have. And who knows, you know, maybe the person who has a cure for cancer is a high school student in Hill House, but they may not have the same opportunities that other have. So if you could address that and then. The okay, could you. you all hear the question? Um, so the, one was directed to me and one was directed to Johnny. Uh, the one directed to me was, um, I hope I don't do it misjustice, but essentially as an African-American woman, finding herself uh, in various international settings, how do I deal with some it being the only one or being uh, certainly one of few, and have I faced you know, discrimination and, and uh, the like? And I, I think the answer is, you know, obviously there, there are some circumstances where um, I may be the only woman in the room or the only uh, person of, of color. Um, but I'm representing the United States of America. And uh, I have found that uh, when, when I show up in, in whatever role I'm in, even when I was in uh, far more junior roles, as a representative of the United States of America, people primarily dealt with me on that basis. Uh, and um, I, I can't pretend that there haven't been occasions when you know I, uh, people have made flip comments uh, or, uh, you know, been somewhat condescending. But for the most part, uh, they don't have the, the space uh, or the ability to, to do that or to dwell on it because they know at the end of the day that they have to deal, uh, for better or for worse, with whatever uh, the United States government is coming or saying or doing. And that's the basis on which um, I have found that, uh, that I'm interacting on uh, most, uh, if not all, occasions. Um, and so I, to a great extent, have not found that to be uh, an impediment. Um, far more of an impediment, frankly, but still overridden by this fact that I was representing the U.S. government was when I was 32 years old, uh, and the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs and often the senior American official going around uh, representing the United States. And it was my youth rather than my uh, gender or my race that was uh, most noticed. 
um, and still uh, not something that at the end of the day got in the way of my doing my job. I'd quickly say, relative to Hill House, uh, sure, you know, it's, the easy answer is to, uh, to expose your students you know, to what's happening over here at Yale and get them over here and invite them to things like this and so forth. I think that's part of it. I'm sure we can do more of that. Uh, but I also think the, hard, the tougher thing and the thing we need to do more of is take the, uh, Yale over to them you know, and, and, and meet them where they are. Uh, you know, I just, this, uh, coincidentally, when I was a student here, uh, I, I uh, started a, you know, I got my, actually my first exposure to, you know, to uh, kind of my, my first bug in excitement around mentoring and, and, and the social sector actually started a, a program over at Hill House High School, this is back in the 80s, uh, that was called the Young Men's Leadership Forum and we took, we brought a bunch of uh, Yale students over to, uh, to, to Hill House every week and we did study skills and mentoring, we did you know, a, a lot of work on the ground in the classrooms with those students and just to provide, most of whom were, were, were teenage fathers, okay, uh, and we just met them where they were and we, and we, you know, we helped and we, uh, we built relationships and, uh, and we were there you know, in their house. And I think that really made a difference. And the other thing we did, which is sort of a, that, that I think you could argue we may be, is, is the kind of thing we could do more of, but just as a fun entrepreneurial thing, you know, for those of you who don't know, at least back then, Hill House had a great basketball tradition, and uh, and they would, when they would play uh, Wilbur Cross here, they would have more people in Payne Whitney Gym than we would have when, when we were playing Yale, on the Yale basketball team. Uh, and so uh, so they thought they were really good at basketball, so I brought, you know, I was on the basketball team here, and we went over to Hill House and play, brought, you know, when we were seniors, played a game in their gym, Yale varsity basketball versus them. Uh, and, and we had them introduce it, uh, uh, speak to, we had speakers. It was just a fantastic sort of community event and, brought, and, and built a lot of bridges. Things like that, I mean, that's way, you know, many, many years ago. But it's just an example of, of, of things that we can do more of, and I'm sure we're doing a lot of uh, much uh, already that Peter could speak to. But uh, figuring out ways to bring the best of Yale to them in addition to thinking about exposure around them coming to us. Great. So who won the game? We killed them. <laughs> <laughs> are, there, are there actual witnesses? But, yes, we, we killed them. Uh, and, and yes, there are. So Tim Shriver, who's you know chairman of Special Olympics, was a teacher over at, uh, over at Hill House then. And, and, and he will attest, he was the, my partner in building this initiative that, that, that uh, was very successful. And, uh, uh, and not only do we win, but our, we, it wasn't me in this case, but one of our, uh, one of my teammates won the dunk contest against those guys, okay? So it was, it was an eye-opening moment for, for, for Hill House students. <laughs> yes, over here, please. So there's a little over a year left in President Obama's term, and I'm just wondering, looking back and even a little bit forward, um, is there su such a thing as an Obama doctrine, uh, anything resembling that? And if that's not something that's the case, is there something, um, is there a Rice Doctrine? The Rice Doctrine would have to be the Obama Doctrine. <laughs> for now. For the next 15 months. Uh, no. Um, you know, we've really refrained from, uh, from trying to uh, distill our approach into a doctrine. Um, I think if you understand the way President Obama approaches foreign policy and national security. Uh, he is 
both principled and pragmatic. Uh, and he would reject, um, as a matter of uh, intellectual point of view, but also as a matter of practice, a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, and uh, so, no, we don't have a doctrine. What we, what he would say and what he deeply believes is that American leadership is necessary and indispensable, that it can be and must be uh, a force for progress and for good, but that there are limits to what uh, even the most powerful nation on the planet um, can accomplish for other people in their own countries. At the end of the day, uh, whether it's political transformation or economic growth or, uh, or even conflict resolution, there are vital contributions that the United States and uh, others in the international community, now, typically uh, with American leadership, can bring to bear. Uh, but at the end of the day, there are certain fundamentals that have to be accomplished by uh, and for uh, the people of a given country or a given region, um, whether it's fighting corruption, uh, uh, cronyism, insisting on respect for human rights. The outside world can do a great deal to call uh, attention and, and demand uh, certain standards and performance, but at the end of the day, it will not last uh, and uh, it, it will not be um, something that uh, is fundamentally enduring unless it, it is owned um, by the local population. And that's, in many ways, the challenge we're facing in Syria and Iraq. It's the challenge we're facing in Afghanistan. It's, it's a challenge that you could argue is, is at the root of many of the most difficult uh, global problems that we are wrestling with. Jackie. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much, first of all, for sharing your insights with us. Um, obviously, many of us have students in the room, and we're figuring out what we want our specialty to be and how and if we want those to relate to our careers after education. So I was just wondering, since you hold degrees in different disciplines, if you could talk about the values and interests that took you from there to where you are today. I wish I could tell you that, you know, there was a linear path between I was a history major. Uh, Johnny studied Latin American studies, and then I went on and did international relations. Um, I don't think so. I, my piece of advice, if I have one, is uh, very simple, and that's to follow your passion. Do whatever it is that motivates you and excites you, whether you think it's going to get you a good job coming out of college or not. Do what you find fascinating and motivating. And that's what you're going to be good at, and that's what will take you uh, to the next and the next exciting thing. I never anticipated when I was an undergraduate at Stanford uh, that I would be in a career in international affairs, much less as national security advisor or UN ambassador. That was not, I was going to be uh, a civil rights lawyer uh, or, uh, you know, a community activist. That's sort of how I thought of my future, and if I ever uh, got a home state uh, that had voting rights, as opposed to the District of Columbia where I grew up, I thought maybe I might run for, for a public office. Um, and I've ended up in a completely different place. And, but the one thing I have done is follow my heart and my head uh, and 
do things that I love to do, and that's never led me astray. So that's what I would say. John the one Allen. thing I'll add to that is, while you're following your passion, work really hard at this stage of your career to figure out where, what your genius gifts are, where you can be top 10, top 20% in your peer group, uh, what you do best and what that translates into from a career standpoint, because it's great to be focusing on something that you love. You know, if you want to, you know, I always share a story, folks, I want to, you know, I want to be a recording artist, but you better be able to sing, right? <laughs> if you can't sing, I don't care how passionate you are about music, you ain't going to make any money doing that, right? So focus on, you know, that combine with, the, with people who get the farthest, people who realize their potential, we've found have, have uh, they, they combine those, the, that sweet spot, that lane, which is what you're passionate about and what your, you know, where your genius gifts are. And, and because what uh, you need to focus on at this stage early on is being a high performer. Uh, and if you're a high, you're more likely to be a high performer if you're focused on what you're passionate about, but you're most likely to be a high performer if you're really good at what you're doing. And, and being a high performer will position you to develop the relationships that you will, uh, that will really catapult your career that I think everyone here who's more you know, tenure in their career could speak to about how important that is. So I'm afraid we're actually out of time. So I, I feel very badly for these, you, you two, your two lines that waited so patiently. Um, can we please give Ambassador Rice and John Rice another round? Thank you.